The Apostle Paul, in these opening chapters of his letter to the, the church in Corinth, has set a contrast between man's wisdom, human wisdom, and God's wisdom. Will showed us last week that, that Paul proclaimed a message of Jesus Christ crucified. A simple gospel message, but a message that is offensive to man's wisdom. A crucified Savior doesn't sound like a Savior at all. But, but Paul wanted the, the church in Corinth to, to understand that their, their acceptance in Christ wasn't based on his eloquence or his philosophy, but based on the power of God. And yet because Paul, or Paul has done such an effective job at, at dismantling human wisdom, it, it might actually leave the Corinthians, or, or maybe leave us with the, the question, is Paul's teaching nonsense? I mean, does he make any sense? Does he have anything positive, anything constructive? Does it, does it hold together? Is, is the gospel actually wisdom? And so that's what we hear when we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6. Listen to the word of God. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we speak of God's secret wisdom. A wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed it to us by his Spirit. I invite you to bow your heads as I pray. Father in heaven, you are the Lord, you are the creator, you are the one with authority. And yet our hearts are admittedly resistant to your authority in our lives. We want to live our own way under our own standards, according to our own wisdom. And so I pray that as we hear your word, as we have read it in scripture, as we hear it preached, that you would challenge us, that you would change our hearts, that we would become like Christ. Lord, that you would humble us that we would acknowledge our own sinfulness and find the righteousness that we need, the goodness in Jesus alone. Lord, we come, some of us excited to hear your word, eager for your spirit to work in our hearts. Others of us come resistant, hesitant to believe, and so I pray that you would work in each of us, that you would break through our resistances, that you would answer our questions, that you would give us true and living hope in the gospel. Lord, we need to see Jesus and hear the message of Jesus Christ crucified. And so we come praying in the name of Jesus, our Savior, Jesus, who is declared to be the Lord of glory. Amen. Now, we all know that one of the best ways to stop the spread of illness is to wash your hands. I mean, this is common knowledge. It's taught to little children in their preschool classrooms, you're reminded of it every time you use a public restroom, that the, the simple act of washing your hands is one of the, the most important health decisions that, that we can make. But what's now commonly known and commonly accepted as wisdom wasn't always the case. Before the late 1800s, doctors didn't scrub up before surgeries. They didn't wash their hands before treating patients. It was Dr. Ignaz Semmelweis who discovered the link between unwashed hands and illness. He worked in the maternity ward of the General Hospital in Vienna, 
And he wanted to figure out why so many women were, were becoming sick, why so many were, were dying of fever after giving birth. Now, the hospital actually had two distinct maternity wards, one that was staffed entirely by, by men, by the male doctors and the medical students, and one that was staffed by women, by midwives. Now, that wing of the hospital, that maternity ward that was staffed by women, had, had a much greater success rate of keeping women healthy. It was, you are five times more likely to, to die in childbirth if a doctor was involved. And so Semmelweis tried to figure out what was going on, figure out the difference. I mean, these are the men who we've trained. They, we, sh- we should be able to, to make this a safe place. And so, so he looked for what are the differences. They, he, he tried to, to implement some of the things that were happening in the, in the one word to bring about change in the other, and it, it didn't work. And then a, a, a clue, actually a tragic clue, a fellow doctor caught the illness. An illness, a fever, which previously thought was only something that a woman who had just given birth could have, and yet this male doctor had contracted it, which meant it wasn't specifically related to childbirth. Then Semmelweis stumbled upon the the key difference between these two maternity wards. See, it was only the doctors and medical students who performed autopsies. The midwives did not. It was only the, the doctors who went from the morgue directly to delivering babies. Now, it seems so obvious to us today. What a, what a terrible strategy that is to go from a cadaver to the delivery room without washing your hands. And so that's what Semmelweis did. He made his doctors, his medical students, wash their hands and they saw immediate results. Lives saved. Now, it's so obvious to us, this, this clear wisdom of, of, of what the right path is, that, that we would assume that, it, that the rest of the hospital would implement this hand-washing policy, that hospitals around Europe and then around the world would, would do the same and that lives would be saved. Unfortunately, Semmelweis, partly because he was a little tactless in describing the need, to be blind, and also because other doctors to, to make the change would actually have to admit that their previous practices caused death. Doctors were hesitant to, to make the change. And so Semmelweis lost his job, and doctors stopped washing their hands. Now, it seems so clear to us, something so obvious, so stunningly simple, and yet it was ignored or, or even ridiculed. But that's the, the kind of situation that the Apostle Paul is describing regarding the gospel in the church. It seems so obvious, so simple, once you've come to understand it. Jesus is the crucified Savior. And yet it's a message that was ignored or ridiculed because it, it seemed too simple. And part of the problem, like the, the doctors who were hesitant to wash their hands, that part of the problem of, of turning to Christ is that you have to admit that your past actions brought about death and destruction. That your life of sin is a life that you need to turn from. You need to admit your, your failures. And so there's no amount of medical data or, or, or testing that could take place that, that can really convince us 
that the gospel is what we really need because the problem lies deep within us in our hearts. We're resistant to the message of the gospel because our, our sinful natures are, are, are in rebellion against God and we want to trust in our own wisdom. And so Paul, for the church in Corinth, shows them the, the, the clarity, the beauty, the power of God's wisdom. He does it by setting this contrast, which we've, we've already seen earlier in chapter 1, a contrast between God's wisdom and, and man's wisdom and tells them that, that there's only one that offers real hope. And so as we look at this contrast this morning, I want us to look at the, the origin of wisdom, the purpose of wisdom, and the destination of wisdom. First, the, the origin of wisdom. Look at the way Paul describes the, the wisdom of men. It's, it's what he calls it back in, in chapter 1, verse 25. He calls it, uh, the, the, he calls it man's wisdom. Or in, in chapter 2, verse 5, which Will read for us last week, he describes it as men's wisdom. In our own verse, verse 6, you can look there with me, Paul says that, that he is speaking a message of wisdom, but it's not the wisdom of this age. It is not the wisdom of the rulers of this age. And so human wisdom, it, this, this should be obvious to us, having heard the argument, human wisdom has its origins in human thinking. Which means if humans are flawed and sinful, then any path or pattern or, or, or plan that is put into place will be flawed and broken as well. And remember, the Corinthians wanted, wanted an eloquent speaker, an eloquent preacher. They wanted to, to hear the, the beauty of philosophy. I mean, this is the, the cradle of, of philosophical thought here in Greece. I mean, they're, they're just a, a, a day's journey from Athens. And so they're longing for something that's, that's beautiful and clear. And, and we might be tempted to kind of shrug it aside as, well, that's the way people used to think. I mean, but think of how desperate you and I are for wisdom, how, how our own culture looks for answers to life's problems anywhere it can find it, in talk show hosts, in celebrities who, who tell us how to live our lives. We look for, for, for self-help gurus, for, for religious patterns, and you can go all over the world to, to find the rituals to go through. A human-made wisdom to try and make things right, to put the world back in order. But God's wisdom is, is not based on human power or human understanding. And Paul, Paul describes it as God's secret wisdom. Look at verse 7. In contrast to the wisdom of this age, Paul says, no, we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden, but is now made known. And, and, and we hear that word secret, and we think of, of whispers. We think of keeping something quiet. A, a secret is something you don't share. That's the whole point. It's a secret. Nobody should know about this. But, but that's not the way the Apostle Paul uses the word secret, the word mystery. It's not what he means when he's describing the, the hiddenness of the gospel. He's saying it, it was secret. You couldn't figure it out on your own, but it has now been made known. It's now an open secret. It's like that moment when the, 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 the orchestra has, has just gotten themselves in tune. Before the curtains are pulled back to reveal the, the opening act, the actors on stage, the, the set ready to go. And you now see what was previously hidden. That's what Paul says when he means it's God's secret wisdom. Without God opening the curtain, you would have no idea what the plan is. You would never figure this out because, because the plan, the message of, of a crucified Savior is one that, that wasn't just offensive in the first century. It remains offensive to us today. Paul says that this is a message which was hidden, 
but was destined by God for our glory, notice at the end of verse 7, before time began. Paul is emphasizing the divine origin of this message, this wisdom, this hope. And this divine origin is good news for us. Because it means it's, it's not a secret that, that should be kept hidden. It's a secret that should be shared with everyone. It's good news that needs to be announced, which means you don't have to be the smartest person in the room to figure it out. You don't have to be the best behaved person in the class to, to, to get the gold star. It's announced to all of us, the fools and the failures alike. The foolishness of God is really wisdom for us because God is making it known. And actually, this, this language of, of God's secret wisdom, God's hidden wisdom, it's here in the context of, of the proclamation of the gospel. I mean, remember what Will reminded us last week in challenging us as a church to be bold in proclaiming the truth of the gospel. Paul's teaching here about the, the secret wisdom of God that's now revealed is set in the context of, of Paul's mis- ministry, his evangelism in Corinth, his global mission of taking the gospel everywhere. It's an, it's an announcement that, that you and I must make. And the fact that it's a message for everyone should be encouraging to us. We should be bold in, in sharing it. it. It's, have you heard the good news? It's not by going through a, through a list of rituals that you come to God. It's not by, 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 by building a philosophy and, and finding a, a framework in yourself to make yourself right. It's that God sent Jesus to be the crucified Savior. And so the divine origin of the message should make us bold should give us a sense of urgency in proclaiming the message. And when the wisdom of of God is announced, what do people hear? What's the purpose of wisdom? What is it meant to do in us? Well, we see the the confusion that results from the the wisdom of this age, from man's wisdom. Look at verse 8. The Apostle Paul says that, that the wisdom of God, none of the rulers of this age understood it. The, the wisdom of this age leaves you, leaves you thinking about yourself and what can I do to make myself right? It doesn't actually offer you any real answers. And so, so you're left without, without understanding what is true, what is real, what is necessary. Paul, Paul's argument, he actually pushes it, pushes it here. He says, uh, for, for if they had understood the message, the wisdom of God, then they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. I mean, the message is, is such foolishness that they attack the very messenger that they destroy the the gift that is given to them in Jesus. And Paul's biblical allusion here, drawn from from Old Testament language in verse 9, he he says, however as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. So you can't figure it out on your own. You need God to make it known to you. You need him to reveal it to you. But in contrast to to the confusion that results from the the wisdom of men, notice how Paul describes those who who hear the wisdom of God and understand it to be wisdom from God. Look back at verse 6. Paul says, We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature. Now, remember how, how, how many problems there are in the church in Corinth. I mean, if, if you just flip through the rest of the book, he's going to talk to them about their willingness to tolerate sin in their midst. 
the fact that they're, they're, they're going to the, the courts and suing one another. He's gonna, they're, they're, they're living lives of sexual immorality. When they, when they celebrate the Lord's Supper, well, they, the rich people get together first and have a big feast and exclude everyone else. I mean, it's a church that, that is filled with problems, and yet, how does Paul describe the church? When you hear the wisdom of God, then you are those who are among the mature. So we may think, how could, how could Paul describe the, the Corinthians as, as the mature? I mean, he's really challenging them. He's pressing them to live lives that look like Christ. To be those who, who find their completion and their purpose and their hope in Christ. To be those whose, whose lives actually start to look like Christ. Now, in chapter 3, in the beginning of those verses, he'll, he'll acknowledge that most of them are not living like they're mature. He'll say that they're spiritual infants. And they're living as those who, who yes, have heard the gospel, but have but are not, not putting it into practice. But Paul is saying that, that when you really hear, when you understand, when you, when you implement the wisdom that comes to, to us from God, then your life should be changed. You should be someone who can be described as the mature. Those who look like Christ, who act like Christ. Now, the question that we'd have to ask ourselves then, if you're a follower of Christ, is, is that how you would describe yourself? Is this an appropriate description to be applied to you? Would an apostle standing in our midst say, you are among the mature? Or are we just kind of among those that, well, yeah, I mean, I'm Christian and I'm here and, I, you know, I'm kind of okay with where I'm at. You know, I mean, I'm, you know, I still kind of stumble through life and I, but I'm okay. You know, things are good. But that's the same answer you would have given last week. And the same answer you would have given last month and last year. I mean, in our church, unlike the church in Corinth, there, there would be people who have been members for years, for decades. I mean, in the church in Corinth, this is a, a brand new church. So yes, some of them may have grown up in the synagogue and heard the message of God's salvation from their childhood, but all of them are new church members. But he's challenging them. You cannot, you cannot rest in your, your church attendance or your your, your facade of goodness, you actually have to be among those who are the mature. And that doesn't mean that you're those who are already perfected. It, it actually means you're honest about your sin, but you're not content in your sin. It means you're honest about, about where you stand in your relationship with Christ. You may even say, I, I, I'm, I'm not really where I should be. I don't long for the things of God the way I should. I don't, I don't orient my life toward his purposes. But you have a desire to, to sort of lean in and move closer to Christ, to, to be today what you weren't yesterday, to become more mature in Christ, to become more like Christ, because, because the complacency that kind of settles in our hearts, it's not where Jesus wants us. I mean, when Paul is calling us to be mature, he's calling us to live like Christ. Now, actually, though, for some of us, we hear this language of people in the church being called the mature, and, and it sort of strikes us as a little bit arrogant because we've met some of those people, the sophisticated, you know, the ones that know all of the answers, the ones that, that sort of look down at you like, well, you're not quite there yet. And actually, for you, if if, if you're wrestling with the truths of Christianity, that may be one of the biggest barriers you have of putting your trust in Christ is the people around you 
that claim to be Christians, and yet you, yeah, and, and so they, 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 they polish up nicely, and they pretend to have it all together, but you know what a mess their lives are. And so it, it feels to you like hypocrisy, like arrogance to, when, when people describe themselves this way as the mature. Or even, even worse, the, the, this whole contrast that Paul has set up between the mature, those who know the wisdom of God, and, and those that follow the wisdom of men. You know, that it's, it's this insider knowledge. I mean, if, if you feel like the, the, that when you hear this kind of language, when you hear the, the story of the gospel, that it, that it, that it, challenges, it challenges you and it, and it exposes hypocrisy in the church, then I think you're actually getting what Paul is, is driving at. That is exactly what the apostle is doing here. He's exposing hip- hypocrisy in the church. Remember, the context of chapter 1 is you all are looking down at each other claiming, well, I follow Peter, I follow Apollos, I have this secret insider knowledge that you don't have. That's exactly what Paul is saying is wrong. That's what's wrong with the church, he's saying. Is when you you claim to, you take a title like this, which is rightly applied. Paul will call this, this church, he will say that they are saints. They are those that have been sanctified been made holy. He, he, he calls them the, the mature, but not in themselves. They're not the wisest or the best or the smartest. They're mature in Christ. They are sanctified in Christ. See, the real, when you, when you really begin to understand the gospel, you understand that it destroys hypocrisy. Because I don't, I don't get to be counted among the mature or among the saints of the church because I'm the smartest because I'm the best, because I, I had my life together. No, I'm, I'm counted among the, the saints in Christ because Jesus Christ was crucified for me. The solution to my hypocrisy is the death of God. The Son of God died in my place. What boasting do I have to tell you, look at me and how great and wonderful I am. Look at how my life is all together, how I am among the mature. No, if I boast in that, I'm only boasting in Christ because Christ was crucified for me. See, your, your hesitation to, to respond to the gospel because you see hypocrisy, you, the, the appropriate response there isn't to step away and say, well, it, it, it just can't be true. It's actually to lean in. To lean in and say, well, Jesus, what will you do in my life? What will you do in this church? Will you expose the, the foolishness and the hypocrisy? That's what Paul is trying to do in the church in Corinth. Stop pretending you're better than one another. Boast only in Jesus, only in the cross. And that's where our gospel hope is. Look at how, look at how Paul describes the message of the gospel. Again, we're going back to verse 8, where he describes the rulers of this age, that they, didn't, they did not understand the, the gospel message. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They would not have crucified the Lord of glory. I mean, that's a, a biblical phrase, the Lord of glory, that, that comes to us from the prophets and from the Psalms, but it's, but it's unique here in Paul's writing to describe Jesus using, using that title, the Lord of glory. He is the Lord who, who has all power and dominion, all authority, and yet he was crucified. Again, this is what sounds like foolishness to the, the Corinthians, or even sounds like foolishness to us. That the Lord of glory could be crucified? See, if he's crucified, well, then we should call him something else. 
Because when you're crucified, you are exposed. Your, your shame is, is there for all to see. But it's in the cross that Jesus really is the Lord of glory. For he uses his power, his authority, his majesty on behalf of his people. He willingly takes our sins upon himself. And that's the hope of the gospel. And so that, that crushes our, our arrogance. Because we can't trust in ourselves. We trust in the Savior, a Savior who would willingly die for us. The Savior who is the crucified Lord of glory. We can say both of those things in the same sentence and they are equally true. And, and that's the message that you need to believe. I mean, the challenge that's in front of you today, the, the call that is before you is, will you trust in Jesus? We, we as people, we don't, we don't like that kind of contrast. God's wisdom or man's wisdom. See, we want to just kind of stay in the middle and shrug our shoulders and, and say, well, preacher, that's good for you. I'm glad that works out for you. Like, I'm glad you found something that, that works in your life. I'm, I'm going to keep looking, keep testing things out, you know, piece things together, see what works for me. But that's not the contrast that, that's offered. Will you trust in the message of, of God's wisdom, the message of a crucified Savior, or will you trust in your own message? Because the arrogance of those who reject Jesus is that even in their rebellion, they, they, they expose themselves to the judgment of God. I mean, the rulers of, of, of this age, they did not understand the message of the gospel. Paul's saying, for if they had, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. They would have understood when Jesus claims to be the Son of God, he really is, he is the Lord of glory. How, how could we even contemplate crucifying him? He should be exalted and, and praised, and yet this was God's plan. Through their sin and their rebellion, they put in place God's perfect plan to bring redemption to his people. This is the hope of the gospel, that nothing, not even human rebellion, not the, not the power of the, the Jewish religious leaders, not the power of the Roman Empire, could defeat God's purposes. So we've seen the, the origin of, of God's wisdom in God himself, the purpose is to make us why? To make us among those who are, are mature, transformed to look like Christ. And Jesus is described for us as the Lord of glory, but, but notice that this glory is also given to those who trust in him. This is the destination, the, the goal, the end point of God's wisdom. Look again at verse 6, where Paul sets the contrast. He says, the, the wisdom of this age, or of the rulers of this age... Notice how he describes their destination. It's coming to nothing. They are coming to nothing. No matter how much power they accumulate, no matter how much prestige, no matter how much wealth is gathered, it is coming to nothing. If you build a philosophical system to get yourself to God, it falls apart and it's exposed to be nothing. For when you get to the top of the ladder, you realize... All you find up there is yourself. A God who looks and thinks and acts like you do, who is no God at all. You come to nothing, you go nowhere, you accomplish nothing. But then notice the contrast that, of the destination for those who, who, who trust in God. Verse 7 continues, No, we speak of God's secret wisdom. A wisdom that has been hidden that God destined 
for our glory before time began. The, the purpose of God's wisdom is for our glory. Now we've already seen Jesus in the next verse described as the Lord of glory. And yet this glory is, is for us so that we would be glorified. I mean, it's, this is a, a, a key biblical concept, the, the weightiness. Glory, it, it describes the, the, the weightiness, the, the impressiveness, the splendor of God and his majesty, his authority, his power. It's really, you can see because it's repeated in this, in this passage, a, a, a key word for us to understand in this section. We need to understand what, what God's glory is. That he is the one who, who has the, 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 the authority when he walks into the room, when he is present, he gets all of the attention, rightly. When he speaks, he deserves to be listened to and immediately obeyed. He is the one who is, who is holy beyond our imagining. He is glory. And yet the gospel, the wisdom of God, from before time began is, we're told by Paul, for our glory. If you put your trust in Christ, then, then you are valued by Jesus. Your destination is filled with glory. Your life reflects the glory of Jesus. And the contrast for us is clear. Human wisdom, man's wisdom, it's made up by men. It leaves you confused and it ends up in nothing. And yet the wisdom of God, a wisdom which was, which was a secret, but has now been, been boldly announced and proclaimed through the ministry of Jesus. This wisdom of God is, comes to us from God, from before the from before time again, before clocks started ticking, before the sun and the moon kept time for humanity. This is the wisdom which comes to us from God. It's designed to make us mature, to make us like Christ, willing to serve one another in response to the gospel. And it's a message that is for our glory. It's a message you must believe. It's a truth that is filled with power and authority. It lets you know what is really real, what is truly true, what is fundamentally at the core of who you are. And the salvation that is offered in the gospel. Will you believe? Now, today, that's the contrast the apostle sets for us. Will you believe? Do you know what the most valuable company in history was? It's not Google. It's not Alphabet. It's not Apple. Historians calculate that the most valuable company in history, publicly traded company, was the Dutch East India Company. Founded in 1602 and for the 1600s and 1700s, ruled global trading. Traveling from Europe to, to East Asia, and dominating world commerce. At its height in, in the 1630s, it's estimated that, that when, inflated for for inf when adjusted for inflation, the company at its height was worth $7 trillion. Okay, now a trillion is a thousand billion. It was worth $7,000 billion. Okay, that makes it easily 10 times bigger than Microsoft was at its height 
or any of the oil companies or, 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 or Google's Alphabet or Apple, 10 times bigger than any company we've ever seen otherwise. But you know what it's worth today. Nothing. It ceased operations in 1800. Now, it's, it is the greatest economic company ever. If you had invested in 1602, you would have gotten an 18% return on your money every year for 200 years. And today, nothing. And I can tell you what Apple will be worth, what Google will be worth. I mean, not in the short term. Don't take short-term investing advice from me. I'm giving you eternal investing advice. They will be worth nothing. Because it doesn't matter how grand and glorious, how dominant, how great it is, whether whether it's a company or a philosophy or a religious system, if it is made up by men, it leads to nothing. And yet, what does the gospel offer? The glory of the Lord to you. And how? Because Jesus became nothing. Willingly. The Lord of glory died on a cross. He was crucified. But in his resurrection from the dead, he was declared by the power of God to be the Lord of glory. And so find your glory in Jesus Christ. Jesus, the crucified Savior. Jesus, our Lord of glory. Let me pray. Father, our hearts struggle to weigh these truths. They threaten to overwhelm us. When we look at our sinfulness and our brokenness, we are, we are brought to nothing. And so, Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us in your gospel, that we wouldn't be left in a a place of, of despair, but that you would offer us true and living gospel hope. Lord, for those who wrestle with the truth of the gospel, who hear this challenge brought to us by Scripture, by your word, I, I pray that right now they would respond by humbling themselves, by turning to Jesus Christ, admitting their sin and their failure, and finding their hope in him. Father, we long for your glory to be on display in our lives, to be on display in our world. We want our lives to be changed, to reflect the the glory of Jesus, our Savior. And so do that work in our church. Make us bold in our proclamation of the gospel. Make us willing to, to invest our treasure, our children, our lives for the sake of the gospel. Lord, call from our midst missionaries church planters, men and women, to go and make the gospel of Jesus Christ known. Make us willing to to give all of ourselves to you. For you are the one who deserves all power, all glory, all majesty, all honor. So Lord, we ask that you would receive that glory through us, through the work of Jesus Christ in our lives. Father in heaven, we come praying in Jesus' name. Amen.